This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We see more and more efforts of sustainable uh, sustainability coming into our businesses and our life, as well as in our towns. But the transition to a green economy, one that will be able to develop the next level of cities, which can prevent environmental issues, is something that is still in the process of thought. Luckily, there are certain urban systems already in place which can lead us into the future. And it comes at a time when more and more people are living in cities, the locations most important, according to our next guest. That's the backstory behind the book, The Sustainable City, by Stephen Cohen, who's director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University, and he joins us on the show right now. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, Take us first into the importance of this kind of move happening in big cities in comparison to the the more rural areas of the country. I I think that uh, cities provide the opportunity because of their density to have cost-effective uh, delivery of services such as water, energy, waste management, transportation. And so uh, as the population of the planet's grown, although it will peak, but it's now at 7.5 billion, it'll probably peak to 9 billion, uh, the best way for us to, to live the way we live today is to concentrate population and to use that concentration to apply technology uh, to uh, reducing our impact on the, the biosphere. So are cities aware of this importance that, that you lay out moving forward? Are they already starting to make plans towards this? Yeah, and they're not necessarily doing it for the reason I've outlined. They're right. basically doing it because cities are now part of a global competition for business and people. Right, right. And so uh, if you get off the plane in Beijing and the air is orange, you're not going to yeah. do your business there. Right. And I think that uh, Mike Bloomberg uh, recognized that in New York City. He was no famous environmentalist, but when uh, Dan Doctoroff, his deputy mayor, said, you know, Mayor, we're going to increase by a million people in the next 20 or 30 years, uh, the mayor started thinking about, well, what about the energy, the water, the traffic, the housing, the parks, and uh, all the other quality of life elements. And so that's really a part of what's driving this. And, And you see signs of it also in the transport ability of business. I mean, Amazon can actually conceive of taking 50,000 people for its second headquarters and locating it any place in the, in the United States. And that's not something you saw back in the industrial age. Well, and you mentioned New York to a degree. How is, is New York doing uh, in that perspective right now? New York's doing well. We didn't realize it, but we almost went broke uh, moving from being a manufacturing city to being a post-industrial city. The end of World War II, almost half of the GDP in New York City was in making clothing. Uh, last year, it was less than 2%. And, uh, you know, Columbia has a building called the Studebaker Building, which is where they used to make the Studebaker automobile. Right. We don't make cars. We don't make clothing. Uh, Columbia and New York, we, you know, we make ideas. We make uh, public relations. We do finance. We do... Uh, you know, all sorts of other kind of technologically oriented functions, healthcare, but uh, we don't make things here anymore because that's not the high value added part of the economy. So then, then 
in terms of that piece to it, with a lot of those businesses moving elsewhere, uh, how has that impacted, just staying on New York for a second, the dynamic of what that city is as, as a business center of this country and what it will mean moving forward for New York City? Well, we inadvertently moved in the right direction. Uh, we almost went bankrupt in the process. But right. Yeah. Losing all of these businesses was, pro- was actually a good thing because it freed up the space for what they're doing now. I mean, the perfect example is if you come to New York City, we have a park. In fact, the, the, the uh, book cover for my book is from that uh, new park called the High Line. The High Line was a freight train from the West Side docks to the factories we used to have on the west side of Manhattan. Uh, the docks are all gone because containerized shipping uh, made uh, New York's port no longer viable. We were too small. And the factories are gone, and now you've got high-end boutiques, you've got art galleries, you've got great restaurants, and New York has 50 million tourists and uh, a very different kind of economy than we used to have. And frankly, this is the way uh, the economy has moved. I mean, in the U.S., 80% of the economy is in the service sector now. And so the, the part of the economy you want to be is the part that New York has found itself in. And part of what attracts people into this kind of post-industrial city is the sustainability factors mm-hmm. like, you know, air you can breathe, water you can ride your bicycle next to, uh, good park access, uh, and all the other things I, I talk about in the book. But part of that also ha- has impacted this because... Uh, it has also meant that, and, and I see that here in Philadelphia to a degree, in certain sections of the city that were, if you went back 15, 20 years, they were very run down. There wasn't a whole lot to that area. Obviously, in the last few years, we've seen certain areas which have come back, and now you have housing that's you know, $300,000, $400,000 for a townhouse in a particular right. city. So, I mean, from an economic perspective, we're making these changes, but also there's an unbelievable economic benefit for certain sectors right now. Right. And, and I think the, the issue that we're facing is a public policy issue, not that different. I mean, after World War II, uh, you know, because of federal housing policies like guaranteed mortgages and, and uh, deductions on taxes and, and interest, we went from being a nation of renters to owners. Now the right. issue is the poorer people, working people uh, that service this economy, uh, are going to have to live so far away that it, you know, their quality of life will deteriorate. So what has to accompany this gentrification is an effort to, to have some kind of public investment, either through tax expenditures or just through uh, real money, to create housing so that you know, workers can live a little bit closer to where they're going to work. We're talking with Stephen Cohen, who is the author of the book, The Sustainable City. He is a director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Uh, in his book, Stephen breaks down a, a few different areas that I wanted to, to touch on. And, and one, uh, which I think is important to a lot of cities, uh, you talk about mass and personal transit and how that is going to change and develop in the years to come. Yeah, I I mean, I think that uh, with density, mass transit becomes uh, easier to do and more cost-effective. But one of the things about American cities is that uh, we're never going to be as densely settled as, say, European cities are because of 
uh, you know, the, the development of our suburbs and the interstate highway system, uh, we're going to ha- always have personal transportation in bigger numbers here than in some other parts of the world. And so that means that we really have to move off the internal combustion engine to uh, the electric vehicle. And I think that process is, is well underway. Eventually, uh, that renewable, that uh, electric vehicle uh, will be, be lower cost than the internal combustion engine vehicle because it has fewer moving parts and it's actually cheaper to run. Right. So, I, and I think we're seeing the beginning of that, but also where we have uh, density, then uh, the use of buses and, and uh, rail and light rail uh, as a way of moving more people uh, into uh, densely settled areas is, is very important. What about the development of, of public space and parks moving forward? Yeah, well, this is, I mean, one of the things that I, that I looked at is in some older cities, you have abandoned places that were industrial sites and, and places that in some cases have become toxic. Uh, you can do things to uh, remedy those toxics enough and contain them enough that you can use that space for parkland. So uh, there are some examples of that in the book. Uh, also repurposing old industrial spaces. And again, the High Line in New York is a great example of that, but there are examples all over the world. Uh, another New York example is we're building a park on top of the uh, Fresh Kills landfill in Staten Island, which used to be the biggest garbage dump in the world. So we're going to yeah. need to do that. We're going to need to find more open space because uh, one of the problems of living in a city is that you spend most of your time indoors. And so we need to get people outside into public spaces. And they may not be pristine public spaces, but they'll still be uh, well-designed in places where people can hang out outside. But again, going back to something we touched on a second ago, if we want to have those spaces, that goes against the development principle uh, of what we see in a lot of cities right now of, of trying to gobble up as much land as you can and putting properties on a lot of that land as well. Right. But part of what, you, part of what happens, though, when you build a park, I mean, Central Park is probably the greatest example of that, yeah. the surrounding places then become even more more valuable because they have visual amenities. Right, right. And so you can, and, and that was also one of the things that happened with the High Line. You know, this converted freight train, which is a tiny little sliver of a park, is still, you know, very, very valuable and it has done enormous things for the surrounding real estate. So uh, parks and, and pretty much any amenity uh, that gives you air, uh, you know, light and access to water. Uh, can really do quite a bit to generate uh, increased real estate value. And the benefit seemingly now is that because of some of the changes that we're making in our cities, you mentioned about about different transit uh, and the fact that uh, bicycling is seemingly growing once again, and cities are actually making bike lanes on roads, the need and the want to have these types of facilities and, and be outside is kind of picking up again. Yeah, I think, I think we're seeing that. I mean, there's a general move toward what you would call wellness. People, once you get food, clothing, and shelter taken care of, now you're thinking about your health, your children's health, your physical fitness, you know, and and a whole range of issues become more important. And again, it's in sync with sustainability. In other words, clean air, clean water, a toxic-free environment, food that is healthful, all of which uh, people that advocate sustainability are in favor of, well, so are suburban uh, moms that want to make sure their kids are healthy. And I think that's a part of why this 
move towards sustainability has a kind of broad general support. You also talk about the, the smart grid as well and, and how that can play a role moving forward. Yeah, I, you know, our electric grid was built, uh, you know, essentially a block at a time, and it's uh, over 100 years old now. And uh, we waste a lot of energy moving it back and forth. And it's also, it doesn't allow for distributed generation of energy, generation from uh, renewable sources of, of, of the household. And, uh, you know, to the extent that we can move to create a system of microgrids that eventually get connected into a smart grid, we will have a much uh, more durable and resilient uh, energy system. And especially if we couple that with, uh, as technology develops, uh, more household generation of energy. Right. Well, and, and I guess that becomes the bigger question is that, you know, the last few years we have seen uh, more and more of solar being an important component. This kind of goes back to the policy side of things is that we have to make the right decisions from a policy perspective and not necessarily want to put tariffs in place on uh, on solar panels coming into the country. Yeah. And, and I think we also have to be spending more money on the basic science, the research and development uh, that will create the next generation of, of uh, solar cells and, and particularly of battery technology. You know, uh, when I was in graduate school, the computer I used was the size of, of my bedroom, and it had less uh, computing power than my iPhone has. And they shrunk those computers because the, uh, the federal government spent a lot of money shrinking computers, essentially for missile guidance systems. Uh, you know, we need to get back in the business of doing basic uh, science for uh, research and development because the commercialization of these uh, technologies is what's transformed our life already, and we need to do that again. Uh, imagine the disruptive technology if that solar cell was the size of a window and the battery was the size of your laptop instead yeah. of what we're dealing with today. Uh, you also, and you touched on it briefly before, but to dig deeper in it, you talked uh, in the book about uh, waste management mm -hmm. and how that is going to play a role. And part of it also, you we've talked a, a lot here in the last 20 minutes about how this is impacting, uh, being impacted in the U.S., but you also look at, at a lot of these issues in terms of the global perspective in other cities from uh, around the around the world as well. Right. The, the, you know, you go to a place like Barcelona, they have a waste facility called Ecopark. And in Ecopark, the garbage comes in, uh, they sort the wet and dry, they have an anaerobic digester which takes the food, turns it into fertilizer, they have a waste to energy plant that burns what's left over afterward and, and gets electricity out of it, and the ash is used to pave roads. Uh, you know, the good news is more and more of America's garbage is either recycled or treated. Um, and we're actually producing a little bit less per capita than, than we were uh, 20 years ago. So I, I think we're gradually heading in the right direction. In part, it's economics. Garbage costs money now. It used to be a lot cheaper to get rid of your garbage. It used to be a lot cheaper to get your water uh, brought to your home. All these things are becoming cost factors for families and for businesses which is a result of us being on a more crowded planet. But that then opens up the possibility of revenue streams that can amortize uh, you know, the capital expenditures for facilities that apply technology to keeping our environment clean. And, and so your expectation is that the level of innovation that we've seen in some of these areas will no doubt continue, but will continue to grow in the years to come. Yes, and become less expensive. I mean, I think yeah, what right, we know yeah. about technology is the more we use it, 
uh, the, the less the unit costs become. And I think we're going to see that happening here uh, and will increase our quality of life. I mean, one of the themes of my book is that this idea that environmentalists sometimes portray that you've got to do without and you have to sacrifice in order to keep the, the world clean uh, is just simply not true. Uh, the U.S. economy has been growing uh, pretty steadily since the 1980s, with a few exceptions, and the absolute level of pollution has gone down since the 1980s. And it's not that we're sending all the dirty stuff to Mexico, because most, particularly in the case of air, most of our air pollution comes from power plants and motor vehicles. We have a lot more of them now than we used to. But we built the catalytic converter. We built scrubbers. Yeah. We do the things we need to do because we know if you don't keep the place clean, you're going to pay for it later on. How do you deal with the issue of changing policy in, in some of these issues, uh, some of these areas, when a lot of times the companies that are behind the policy that has been in play for you know, a long period of time have such a, a, a grasp on the ability to make change in, in policy right now? Right. And it doesn't seem like the – and, again, this goes, I think, in part to the dysfunction we have in, in government right. – uh, that w it doesn't feel like we're going to see enough change in the years to come. Yeah, I mean, you know, people worry about, uh, you know, the – for example, fossil fuel has a lot of political power. Sure. But, you know, uh, what happens with new technologies and new businesses is they, they still overcome those, those problems. You know, very, very powerful corporations are upended by uh, innovative uh, newer corporations with superior technology. So I think that will continue. Uh, you know, when the motor vehicle comes along, when that electric car comes along that is cheaper and better uh, and as a better as a long range than the Tesla has even today, uh, yeah. people start buying it, and when they buy it, uh, that will have its impact. And the same thing will be true of energy. I mean, if you think about it, you know, AT and T that stood for American Telegraph, Telephone and Telegraph. Yeah, yeah. There's no telegraphs anymore. <laughs> Barely any telephones. Exactly. <laughs> and and you know the pieces of AT and T that have done best are the ones that got into the cell phone business. Yeah. So I think that that's the that's that's what you're going to see. I mean, government uh, and certainly established industries are going to use, are going to translate their economic power to political power, but it's only going to take you so far. It, do you feel confident then, thinking about the auto sector for a second, that some of the traditional automakers are starting to invest more and more in EVs, and they are also partnering up with some of the uh, some of the entrepreneurs and innovators in this sector to try and get ready for that next step? Yes, because it's also we're in a global economy. I mean, even if the American political process is is you know stuck in the mud, you know you've got Europe and China and you know huge markets. Uh, that uh, American companies want to play in. And uh, so the political calculus, uh, you know, may not make sense here, but when you think about your future as a, as a company and you look globally, you start thinking this is what's, hap what's going to happen. I mean, India and China, I mean, there's such a hunger for mobility and motor vehicles and mass transit. And if you're in that business, you want to think about the technology of 10 or 20 years from now, not the stuff from 10 or 20 years ago.
It's a great book, Stephen. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The book, again, is The Sustainable City by Stephen Cohen. It is available in bookstores and available online uh, for you to pick up. Uh, Stephen from uh, Columbia University as the director of the Earth Institute. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.